Okay, uh, I don't know how many of you have ever ridden a motorcycle. Have any of you ever ridden a motorcycle? A few of you? Okay. You still ride? Do you still ride your motorcycle? How many of you, if, uh, uh, if you haven't ridden a motorcycle, have you ever uh, been on the back of a motorcycle ridden? Have you done that too? Okay, have you done that? <laughs> Jack raised his hand, I didn't, didn't recall that. <laughs> Riding on the back of a motorcycle, okay? I've done this one time that I can recall, one time in my life. Uh, and uh, it was the first and last time that I did that. Uh, I did this, I was probably no more than 10 years old. And believe it or not, uh, it was my aunt. My aunt had a motorcycle. And she asked if she could keep it in our garage for a short period of time. And she told my dad that he was welcome to use it if he so desired while it was over at our garage. Now, please understand, I love motor vehicles of all kind. I, and, and even back then, I loved uh, anything with a, with a motor or you know, anything with wheels. I loved it. Uh, my brother and I, we had a, a mini bike at one time, you know, a little tiny motorcycle-like looking thing. We had a go-kart. We had uh, bicycles, skateboards, scooters, and everything in between. We loved all the things with wheels. Uh, so when this motorcycle was in our garage, I was completely fascinated by it. And uh, I was consumed with the thought of how can I ride this? I want to ride this, but again, I was only 10 years old and no parent in their right mind would let their child ride a motorcycle at 10 years old, though I did. Uh, but anyway, my dad agreed uh, to take it out. He said, I'll take it out and, uh, and, you, and I'll, I'll put you on the back. Um, and uh, you, you can go for a ride that way on the back of the motorcycle. And he began driving us around the neighborhood. And let me tell you, I, I wasn't enjoying it. I wasn't enjoying it. I, I never felt like I had a, a tight enough grip on my dad. He told me to hang on uh, by his waist. And again, I was just about 10 years old, so I didn't have terribly big arms or terribly big hands. And, uh, and I seem to remember my dad wearing a coat too, so it made him all the more difficult to, to grasp. You know, I never felt like I could really reach my, my arms around far enough to the front of them to feel like then I could anchor in. I felt like I was more on the side than I was in front, okay? But then my dad, for some reason, decided he would take us on the interstate. So there we were on Highway 101 in California. Uh, and and I, I assume, and I can only guess, and I'm sure he was obeying the speed laws at, uh, at 55 miles an hour, but I swear to you, he was going 155 miles per hour. And again, I was smaller, so I was behind him, so I couldn't see over him. So all I could see was from side to side. And, and all I saw was the blurring street beside me. And again, and the pavement going by, and it was right there going by really fast. And it seemed like I was going 155 miles an hour. And, and it just seemed, again, I, because I could never get a good secure grip on my dad going so fast. I remember thinking that if we hit one good bump, I am flying off of this thing. I, I, I'm a goner. And I, and I even remember thinking at one point, I guess this is how it all ends. This is, a, <laughs> this is how it is for, for me at, at 10 years old. To make a long story short, I was just fine. Everything was fine and nothing happened. There was no incident. Uh, we made it back home and, uh, and I got off the back of that motorcycle. And again, as best I recall, I've never ridden on the back of a, a motorcycle again. And again, because the whole time, was, I, the seat stayed the same size, but it just felt like it was shrinking <laughs> and that I was getting closer to the edge. And I was just, it started being terrified. It was a one and done experience for me. So all that to say, we're in a series right now uh, called Why Do We Believe What We Believe? And the topic we're going to discuss today goes by many names, assurance of pardon, uh, perseverance of the saints, uh, once saved, always saved. Sometimes you've heard people talk about that. Uh, and it comes down, but it comes down to one basic question. Here's the one basic question it always comes down to. Can I lose my salvation? 
Can I lose my salvation? A lot of us, I dare say, maybe all of us who call ourselves Christians have, have probably wrestled with this question at some point in our faith journey. And to make matters more complicated, make matters more complicated, there are, are, are divisions within the Christian faith who would say, yes, you can. <laughs> yes, you can lose your salvation. And sometimes as people who are saved, as people who believe that Jesus died for our sins and, and, and paid for them in full, we still have a tendency to feel like we're on the back of a motorcycle on Highway 101 in California, just barely hanging on. And the slightest bump will cause us to lose grip and somehow we'll lose uh, what we had um, because uh, and fall away, all right? And again, if you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. You are not alone. This is a very common thought within Christian circles. So uh, we wanna ask ourselves a couple questions today. We wanna we want to go to the scripture and ask this question. Can I lose my salvation? What does the Bible say about me losing my salvation? And then we wanna ask, why or why not? Why, why, is, that, why is that the case? Why, why or why not? So let's let the scripture decide for us, shall we? Um, the, the place I wanna take us uh, to answer the, the first uh, question is the book of Philippians. I love the book of Philippians. And I take you there a number of times. I seem to be taking there a lot. Uh, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Philippians in Philippians chap chapter two, five and following. But today I wanna take you to the first chapter of Philippians. So let's go to Philippians chapter one. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there or follow along with me. I'll, I'll put it up here on the big screen. And let's see what it says. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi. And, and uh, this is what we would call one of the prison epistles. Okay, so he wrote this, this letter to the church when he was in jail. Um, and he says this to the church. Let's put it up there now. Here we go. Philippians 1. And this is, whoopsie, whoa, easy, easy. <laughs> Verse uh, 1, 3 to 6 says this. I thank my God. In all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this. And we're going to pause there right for a second because that's not the end of the verse. And I am sure of this, he says. I am sure of this. Uh, in other translations, it says being, being confident of this. Now, what we're dealing with here today, what we're dealing with here today is a question of security. Question of security. Can, we, can, can I hang on to my salvation tight enough? What if I don't hang on to it tight enough? What will happen? So Paul says, I'm sure of this. I'm sure of this. What's the this Paul is sure of? Us, uh, sure of? Does he tell us? Yes, he does. It's the very next thing. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And there, my friends, there. There is the security that we're looking for, okay? What's it telling us there? Again, we tend to think, think of our salvation the same way we think about hanging on to the back of a motorcycle driver, but, but Paul is changing gears a little bit here, no pun intended, but he's implying something that maybe you haven't considered before. Maybe you have or haven't considered before. Uh, he's saying that God is God, God who, who has initiated, who's initiated your salvation, the God that began this redemptive work in you is not going to allow that work to be cut off or left incomplete. He's not going to allow it. In other words, what Paul is saying, to extend the metaphor a bit, God is not going to allow you to fall off the motorcycle. He's not going to allow it. Now, to be sure, my dad would have told me the same thing, right? Son, I wouldn't put you on this thing if I thought you were going to fall off. 
And, and sure, that provides me some measure of assurance, but let's be honest, sometimes dads are wrong. And I realize, as I say that, my son is here today. <laughs> so yes, believe it or not, son, dads can be wrong too. Dads are often wrong, right? And so when, even if my dad tells me, you know, son, I wouldn't put you on this motorcycle if, you're, if I thought you were going to fall off. What if he's wrong, right? But what we're dealing with here is not a promise of human origin, are we? This is not of human origin. This is an apostle speaking on behalf of God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And what he's saying is, I will, essentially what he's saying, I will finish what I started. I will finish what I started. Okay, I'm gonna make this a little bit centered there. Be sure of it. Now, to underscore this idea, one more spot. Let's look at the first chapter of Ephesians, beginning in verse 11. And what does it say? First chapter of Ephesians, uh, verse 11 and following, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, those verses, those verses are loaded with assurance. Loaded, chock full, right? But let, let's zero in on one, one particular phrase uh, in, this, uh, in this passage, where Paul tells us, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sometimes when we translate a word from, in this case, it would have been Greek, we translate a word from Greek into English, it loses some of the specificity. It loses some of the specific nature of the translation. Uh, you can still understand what it means. It doesn't lose it. We, we can't, it's not like we're going to read and not understand what he's saying. But again, once in a while, there's a specific nature to a word that you say, ah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that unless I understood the original origin of it. And uh, um, what, uh, with just a little bit of digging, what we see here is the word that's being used here for sealed, sealed, okay, is the Greek word sphragis, sphragis. Uh, which was used in the cultural context that Paul would have been really familiar with to refer to the seal of a signet ring. You know what a signet ring is? You know, I got one of those for my, one of my uh, graduation, college graduation has a little signet on there and, and they served a purpose other than just being a handsome ring. They had a seal on them. And sometimes it was a very specific seal, a seal that only a king uh, would wear. And yes, yes, they would use that signet ring to, to take a document, if there was a decree of some kind, they would take it and they would seal it with a signet ring with a, with a melted wax. Do we have some melted wax still? We can do a live demonstration right here. And you take, oh, I don't have my signet ring. And so you'd take that, that blob of wax on the document and then you'd seal it with the ring. And, and that seal of the king, the signet seal of, of the king, was as, it was as if to say that this is as good as the, the king's word himself, as if the king were here himself. This has the full authority and full weight of the, of the royal decree itself. And only the king had it, and only the king could do it. And so that was, uh, that's what he's, when, it, when it says sealed here, that's what it's referring to. What, what, what he's saying here is that God seals, God seals every Christian by the promise of his own word. That, that our confidence here, our confidence here is not in our own ability. It's not in what we can do. It's not in our own ability. It's not dependent upon my ability to hang on with my small hands and arms, Right but our confidence rests in the, in the promise of God himself and his ability and his ability to hold us. 
okay? And, and his promise, the seal, the wax seal stamped upon us is the Holy Spirit, if I can say that. If you believe in his work and his ability to save you, then you have the seal of the Holy Spirit on you. It's not ability-based, okay? The fact that you have the Holy Spirit within you is God's signet ring that, that guarantees your salvation, guarantees it, guarantees it. No falling off the motorcycle, impossible. Impossible to fall off the motorcycle here. If the Holy Spirit is present in you, you have God's personal guarantee that his work that he began, that he initiated will be completed. Now, having said that, all right, we should be able to walk away now. We should be able to walk away. We can end the Bible study right now, right now, and leave here thinking, oh, I feel better. I feel better. We, he won't let me go. He'll finish what he started and he guarantees it. Great. However, at least for some of you, at least for some of you, I bet there are still questions that might be persisting, right? Does anyone want to offer what one of those questions might be? You know, okay, I believe it. I believe that, you know, once saved, that's what it says. He promises that he'll, he'll hang on to it. But there's always a what about, right? What about? Does anyone have any thoughts about that? That maybe one of those questions, what might they be? What if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Because what, is it, what, is it, what, what, is, what did Jesus tell us about blaspheming the Holy Spirit? That is the unpardonable sin, the one guarantee. We did talk about that earlier this summer. I'm going to show you another passage too, because here's this. How many, uh, again, how many people have known someone who uh, claims to be a Christian, right? And by every measure of their life appears to be a Christian and then all of a sudden, years later, maybe they're not. What happened there, right? Has anyone ever known someone like that, that, ah, they were a Christian, but now they're not a Christian. What happened there? What happened there? Did the system fail? All right. So the question really is, the question really is, is it possible? Is it possible for a Christian who's been truly regenerated and truly believes in Christ for that person to commit what theologians would call apostasy and, and fall away and lose their salvation? Right, and if you remember, again, we, we talked about the the, the question uh, that uh, that Mr. Uh, Lofbaum brought up a little bit a, a second ago. What about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? This is very related to what we're going to look at right here in Matthew chapter seven, beginning in verse twenty-one and following. And because some people, just like the unpardonable sin, will ask about this Matthew seven twenty-one and following. It says this. Here we go. Let me share the screen. Matthew 7, 21 and following says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. To me, for my money, that is one of the most terrifying verses in the New Testament. When I, when I read that, why? Why is that? If you've ever read it, I bet some of you have thought, what if it's me? Is this, could this possibly be me? In the same manner, have I committed the unpardonable sin? What if I've done that, right? What if it's me? Because, because let me highlight some of the more terrifying aspects of this passage. Uh, again, I know we've talked a little bit about this before, but... Uh, there's one thing in this uh, verse that I want to highlight in particular. Um, when you see a word repeated like Lord, Lord, right at the first line there, Lord, Lord, do you know what that implies? 
Any idea what that implies, Lord, Lord? Is it just emphasis? It implies familiarity, familiarity, okay? In Genesis, when Abraham was about to uh, put a knife to his son, his son Isaac on the altar, he raised the knife and the Lord stopped him by saying, Abraham, Abraham, he repeated it. When the burning bush called out to Moses, it wasn't just Moses, it was Moses, Moses, twice. Also in the New Testament with Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? Okay, it is emphasis, but it's also a a signifier of familiarity. It's a very common literary device that's used in the Jewish world. It's not just, it's for instance, it's not just holy. God is not just holy. God is holy, holy, holy. Three times, triple emphasis, triple emphasis. You read that in Isaiah 6, which we're going to be talking about this week in, in, uh, in church. So you see what makes this especially terrifying, this verse? Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? What's it implying there? Lord, Lord, familiarity. Okay, familiar. The one calling out Lord is not just saying, Lord, I know you, but I really know you. I know you. Yet the Lord replies with, yeah, but I don't know you. I don't know you. So what went wrong? What went wrong here? First things first, let's, let's try and understand context. And the same context would apply for, for Steve's uh, uh, response of what about uh, the uh, unpardonable sin. First things first, we need to try and understand context. The first and most helpful element in understanding this verse is to ascertain who Jesus is talking about. Who is Jesus talking about? Is there a particular group of people he's aiming these words at? Or are these words just aimed at Christians in general, the church in general? Okay, so if you back up just a few verses from what we just read, uh, you get more information. He starts out in verse 15. Let's go to verse 15 now. Back it up to verse 15, which says this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Okay, that helps. Why? Because it seems that those words are aimed at those he would call false prophets. All right. In Jesus's day, who were the false prophets? If you had to guess, who were the false prophets? If you had to render a guess, the Pharisees, the Pharisees. Why? Why did Jesus have such a beef with the Pharisees? Have you ever thought about that? Why? Why did Jesus have such a beef with them? And I could go on with that one for a while. We could do a whole lesson on just that. Why Jesus didn't seem to get along, why the Pharisees didn't like him and why Jesus returned the favor. Okay. Uh, here's something he said to the Pharisees and scribes when he had an encounter with them. This is from Matthew 23. So same book, a little bit later, uh, where Jesus pronounces seven woes, seven woes to the uh, scribes and Pharisees. This is just one of them provides a good summary of what the, what the other six are saying. So this is Matthew 23, 27 to 28, Matthew 23, 27 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Do you see what he's saying to them? Outward, outwardly, you appear righteous. You look good on the outside, but inwardly you're dead. You're dead. Now, how did that happen? How did that happen where these people are are going around, they're acting outwardly righteous, but inwardly, they're, they're dead. How does this happen? How does this happen? Just to, as a quick answer, uh, power does strange things to people. 
Power does strange things to people. It's, it can be dangerous. And, and the power the scribes and Pharisees that they had, it came out of their, and I'll, I'll put this in quotes, it came out of their righteousness. The power they had came out of their righteousness. You see, the Pharisees started in the intertestamental period, so that period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, okay? And, uh, and the Pharisees were a group of people who were upset because the people of God were, were abandoning the purity of the covenant that they had made with God, which, you know, what, which wasn't unusual for the Jews. The Jews were always wandering, okay? They made a regular habit of it, but who, who knows? Maybe some of these particular Pharisees might have even uh, uh, began what they set out to do with, with good intentions, you know, they were, they were saying, we need to be, we need to be good. We keep, we keep straying away, right? But what happened? They pulled themselves together and set out to be a moral example. And the Pharisees set out to be a moral example. Now, being a moral example is good until it's not. Being a moral example is good until it's not. When does me, being a moral example become bad? When does become more, being a moral example become bad? When you do something immoral? When you don't live what you preach. When you don't live what you preach. When does, it, when does becoming a, a good, good example turn bad? When it be, here's where I was going with it. Those are both right answers, but here's where I was going with it. When that becomes the end itself. When being moral becomes the end itself. Now listen, listen. If you've ever thought about what Christianity is, it is not just about being moral, all right? That is not the end. That's not the end, right? When that, becomes, when that becomes the goal, that's the problem, okay? God wants our hearts. He wants our hearts, okay? And when he has our hearts, the end result, the natural result is morality because your heart is changed, okay? The Pharisees decided they could be moral and that in and of itself would be pleasing to God, okay? If we keep the law, there are many, in this intertestamental period, if we keep the law, if we do what's right, and there was some that even believed that they could keep the law, if they just kept the law for 24 hours straight, if they perfectly kept the law for 24 hours straight, then the Messiah would come. But do you see what the transaction going on there is? If I'm good enough, if I behave good enough, well enough, then God will be pleased. If I do right, then God will be pleased. And so they really set out, let's, let's do this right. Let's follow the laws, and then we'll build laws around the laws to make sure that we really keep the law. And then you know what we're going to do? We're going to make sure everyone else does it too. You obey the law and you obey the law and you better obey the law because if you don't obey the law, then we can't please God. But do you see what this is? That's a different religion. <laughs> That's a new religion, okay? They began using the law as a battering ram that they would beat people down with the law and try and produce a positive result with it. And you see, all of that was done in the name of God. It was all done in the name of God, Okay? And, and look what I'm doing for you, Lord. Look what I'm doing for you. I'm, I'm making people be good. I'm making people be good. And, and to that, Jesus says, no, depart from me. I never knew you. That's not what this is all about. See that it, it's not just that Jesus is going up to random Christians, depart, you're doing it wrong. I never knew you. No, he says, depart to anyone and everyone who tries to use morality as a means to get in good with God. That's what he tells depart. If you're using your morality as a means to reach God, he's going to say that's, you're, not, you're never going to reach there. No one gets to God that way. No one. No one. If you're relying on the work of Christ and the work applied to you, not because of what you did, 
because of what he did, then the only response he has for you is well done, good and faithful servant. That's the only response, the only possible response. If you're relying on the work of Christ, the only possible response he has for you is well done, good and faithful servant. Because now you're going before God, not with your own ability, not with your own ability to keep the law, not with your own ability to be moral, but with his. And he did it perfectly. He did it perfectly. Okay, does that make sense? Anyone have any questions or thoughts so far? Online, if you have a question, just say yes, and I'll come to you uh, and, uh, and respond. Anyone else have questions or thoughts, comments? Before we continue, I want you to understand at least that much so far, why the Pharisees were in bad with Jesus. Because again, they tried, they tried reaching. Oh, I don't know what happened there. We still on? So they tried, they tried pleasing God. They tried earning favor with God through their obedience to the law. And again, that was never the intent of the law. The intent of the law was to show you, you couldn't do it. The intent of the law was to show you that you needed a savior. You know, and that's, that's, why, that's why God built the, the law the way he did. Think about how he built the law. He says, here are the laws you have to keep. And then built into that law are laws that says, and when you fail, make this sacrifice, make this means of atonement, and do this. It was built into the law to show you you couldn't do it. But here the Pharisees thought, wait a minute, I think we got a chance. I think we can hold on to the motorcycle driver tight enough. I think we got it. I think we got it. Now, now, I want to answer the question of can I lose my salvation by, by way of one more, uh, let's call it a case study. Okay, let's call it a case study. This is so interesting to me. I love looking at this because inevitably, when we start talking about the possibility of losing one salvation, someone eventually brings up Judas, the curious case of Judas, right? Uh, can it be said that Judas lost his salvation? And, and whenever someone says that, I like to do this comparison, a comparison between Judas and, any guesses? Huh? You, Peter. Yes. Fran had a good guess too. Me. <laughs> so, could be me, Judas and me, because you know what? There's a lot of lines of comparison between Judas and me, but, but by the same measure, same thing with Peter. There's a, there's a lot of lines of, a lot of lines of, of, of comparisons between Judas and, and Peter. And at this point, I always love to credit R.C. Sproul because I remember first realizing their similarities based on a, a lecture that he once gave. And, uh, but how can we compare uh, Judas and Peter? First of all, think about their crimes. Think about their crimes against Jesus. They're very similar, very similar. Judas betrayed Jesus. And that same night, Simon Peter denied Christ. It's a betrayal. It's still a betrayal, both of them. So these two men who had been disciples with Jesus since his early ministry, since early on in his ministry, they both turned on Jesus. Both of them did. Both of them did. You know, there are further similarities between these two in that Jesus predicted their diabolical acts. He predicted them. You know, he, he told them about him ahead of time, right? Let's look at uh, John 13, beginning in verse 21. John 13, beginning in verse 21, it says this. Oh, goodness, this, this, uh, this gives me chills. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining. That was John, by the way. One of his disciples who Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of, of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread and when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. 
And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. So again, he tells Jesus, uh, uh, Judas, what you're going to do, do it quickly. And then he dismissed him. Now, what about Simon Peter's denial? Very similar, very similar. So when he did so, Peter protested saying, Lord, I would lay down my life for you. You know, I'll, 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 I'll storm the gates of, of hell with you, uh, with Jesus. That's what he said, right? Not, not, don't quote me on that. that was not, that's not an exact quote. But he said, even if I, if I must die with you, but I, I will not deny you. If I have to die with you, but I'll not deny you. And, then, and Jesus replied with, let's look at what he said in Luke 22, 31. Luke 22, 31, he says this. Simon, Simon, repeated name there, familiarity. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now think about that visual for a moment. Oh, striking, it's a striking visual. What's he trying to say here? He's, he's pointing to a farmer's task that isn't particularly difficult, okay? Sifting wheat isn't terribly difficult. Gravity does most of the work here. It does all the work. It may take time, it may be tedious, but it's not a difficult job at all, okay? So Jesus is saying to Simon, Simon, you think you're all that. You, you think you're, you're so confident and self-assured, Simon, not only is Satan stronger than you are, and not only can Satan entice you to fall, but he can do it easily. He can do it easily. He can sift you like wheat. You're like a toy in his hands. Imagine having those grains of wheat and just watching them sift through your hands and, and fall down. He's like, this, this is nothing to me, Simon Peter. This is what Satan could do to you. He could just, he could have his way with you and, and you wouldn't even know what hit you. But here's what's interesting. Unlike what he said to Judas, he doesn't say anything like, like oh, what you're going to do, do quickly, Peter, right? What did he say to Peter? What was, what was said to Peter was significantly different than what he said to Judas. This is Luke twenty-two, thirty-two. 32. Luke twenty-two, thirty-two says this. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Okay, do you want assurance? There's some assurance right there. Okay, look what he's saying there. Look, look, look how the comment drips with the notion that it's not up to you to hold on to the motorcycle driver. It's not up to you. It's not up to your small hands and your, your, small, your small arms. He's the one holding on to you. Jesus isn't saying, Simon, I'm praying for you and I'm holding my breath, hoping that when push comes to shove, you'll be able to resist Satan. That's not what he's saying, right? Uh, he's saying, if you turn, not if you turn, he's not saying if you turn. What he says is, I've prayed for you. And when you turn again, when you come back, strengthen your brothers. See, there's no, there's, there's no doubt in Jesus's mind about two things here, two things that Simon Peter would deny him. He's absolutely, absolutely sure that Simon Peter would deny him. Peter was going to fall and it was going to be awesomely bad, okay? A betrayal at the highest level, he was sure of it. And the second thing that he was sure of, absolutely sure of, that Peter would be restored. And not only would he be restored, he would endure to the bitter end. Eventually, Peter would stand before the same tribunal that Jesus stood before, but this time Peter couldn't shut up. <laughs> and Peter says, we, we must obey God, not man. And he was martyred. He was martyred for that. He couldn't shut up, right? Now, now, okay, imagine Peter. Is there a connection between these events that occurred with Peter and the rest of the New Testament? 
And, you know, I believe there isn't that connection is found in the words that Christ told Peter, I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you, Peter. And that's enough. That's enough to hold you. That's enough to keep. Does he say the same thing to us? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Our greatest consolation regarding our eternal security, our salvation, comes from the full assurance that the New Testament gives to the present work of Jesus Christ. What Jesus is doing right now, his present work. Okay. When Jesus died on the cross, his words were, it is finished, right? And that phrase, it's an accounting phrase. It's, it's not just translated as, phew, I'm done. All right. It is finished doesn't just mean did it, finished, right? It's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's literally an accounting term that, that essentially means paid in full. So when Christ died on the cross and proclaimed paid in full, he wasn't stating that his work was done. He was done in terms of satisfying the debt that our sins incurred. That part was done. The work of atonement was satisfied and paid in full. So yes, in that respect, Christ's work was done, but by, by no means was, done, was Christ done working. He still had jobs to do. He still had something to do. Do you know what uh, Romans 8.34 says? It tells us what Christ is doing right now on your behalf. Right now, Romans 8.34, it says this. This one I'm going to share with you too. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us right now. That's what he's doing right now. Right now. Christ is interceding on your behalf. He's praying for you. Jesus prays for you right now before the Father. And when you fall, and you will fall, you will fall. He's praying for you so that when you turn, not if you turn, when you turn, you have the ability to strengthen those around you, just like Peter. Yeah. Yes, Judas turned again when he threw the pieces of silver. But see, that's that's the difference here that I'm saying. That's right. Judas didn't believe that Christ raised. Judas had other motives, and so you know, in terms of did Judas lose his salvation? I would say no. So he never had it. I think Judas had different motives for, for being around and following Jesus. I think Judas's motives were, you know what? This guy, I need, to, I need to hitch my wagon to this guy because he is going to be a military conqueror. He's going to be a political leader, and he's going he's gonna to free us from, from Rome. So I need to hitch to this guy. And so when, when it didn't start panning out like that, when it didn't start panning out like that, Judas said, you know what? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I, I want to be a part of this. Yes. That uh, Paul's, Paul's talking about false prophets and the motives of the false prophets. Yes. This, is, this is exactly what the, the whole book of Galatians is about this. The whole book of Galatians is about a false gospel, about false prophets coming to the church and saying what? This, this, is, what it came, this is what it comes down to. In Galatians, they were talking about, hey, uh, these false prophets came to town and said, listen, if, if you want to be Christian, you got to be Jewish first. You have to obey the law first in order to come to Christ. And, and Paul was saying, that's another gospel. And the strongest words that the apostle ever had were probably in that opening uh, chapter of Galatians that said, may they be anathema is the word, which is, again, it's, it's utterly cursed. It's, it's, He's basically telling them to go to hell is what he's saying. And, and not, not being crass, but telling them literally to go there. Because if you teach another gospel and the gospel that they were teaching, quote unquote, the gospel they were teaching was 
Same thing that the Pharisees were talking about here. Same thing. Earn your favor with God by working, by doing some sort of work. False gospel. False gospel. Okay? And that's the difference. That's the difference between Peter and, 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 uh, and, uh, and, and Judas. One of them, one of them, again, believed in Christ, but again, was, was sealed by Christ. It wasn't up to Peter to hold on. It was because Jesus was holding on to Peter. And if you've reached a place, if you've reached a place in your faith where you can say, I don't believe in my work. I believe in the work of Christ applied to me. That means you're saved. And if you understand that, if you understand that, the only way you can understand that is if the Holy Spirit has applied himself in you. If Jesus has put that Holy Spirit in you to the point that now, and if that work is in you, like just like we talked about at the beginning, if he started that work, guess what? He will finish it. He guarantees it. You have that seal on you. So if you believe it, if you believe it, there is zero, there's no chance. There's no chance it fades away and no chance it fades away. So again, with someone like Judas, we, we say, we argue, we say, he just never had it. He never had, it. he didn't lose it. You can't lose what you never had. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Let me bring it in for a landing here. Again, ultimately what we say is it's, it's not in our hands. It's not in our hands. It's not up to you to hold on to the motorcycle driver. He holds you. He holds you. It, 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 uh, it, now, that doesn't give you license to do whatever you want now, right? That doesn't give you license to do whatever you want. If you trust in the work that he's done on your behalf, the Holy Spirit takes up residency within you, right? And because he lives there, naturally your behavior will change. It's a natural byproduct of the Holy Spirit living in you. So you will change. Your behavior will change. But again, the works are a byproduct of, of what's already changed inside you. It's not that the works are bringing about the change. That's the, that's the reverse. The change happens first inside you, and then the works are a natural byproduct. The works don't bring about the change. It's the other way around, okay? Um, and he won't let you go. And one last thought. This is the one last thought that I want to share with you uh, about this subject. Uh, because, again, it's, this is a thought that I want you to take with you as we, as we leave here. Um, in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus at the end is engaging uh, in what's known as the upper room discourse. One of my favorite passages of scripture. Again, I have so many of those. Christ is about to be crucified. Just think about this. Christ is about to be crucified. He's about to go through the suffering that would culminate at the cross. And what does he say here? He tells them, let your hearts not be troubled. He's about to be crucified. He's about to suffer for our sake. And he's telling them, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Imagine, imagine he's about to be crucified. This is John uh, 17, six and following. It says this, I love this whole upper room discourse. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. He's talking about his, his disciples here. And they have received them and have come to know, that, uh, know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. Think about Peter. Same thing. I am praying for them. I, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, 
but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except for the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And that's Judas he's talking about. He's acknowledged that one has fallen, but the scriptures elsewhere declare that, uh, that uh, he was the one, the son of destruction from the beginning. He never had it. He never had it. Okay. He made a profession of faith perhaps, but he was never a converted man. Judas was more interested again in, in what Jesus could do as a political leader, not interested in what he could do to Judas personally. Right. And, and, and and the, the whole point of Jesus's prayer here is that none, none whom the father has given to the son are lost. None, not one. This is his prayer. No one, he said, can snatch them out of my hand. John 10, 29. Then as he prays uh, for the disciples in his high priestly prayer, he mentions you. He mentions you. You're mentioned here. Did you know that? He talks about you. This is John 17, 20, where this will we'll wrap it up. He's talking about you here. I do not ask for these only, for the disciples here in the room with me, right? But also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's me and you. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, and me, and I and you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here's the tall and the short of it, folks. Jesus prays for you. Jesus prays for you. We're able to hang on to him because it's really he who is hanging on to us, and he will not let you go. He won't let you go. He will not let you go. He will hang on to you one way or the other. Even in, even in the seasons when you will fall, you will fall. You and I, we're going to fall many more times between now and, and the time that we, uh, we meet him face to face. But even in spite of, just like Peter, think about Peter. What did he tell Peter? He said, when you fall, right? When you turn on me, when you come back, when you come back, because I've prayed for you, strengthen your brothers. And that's the same thing he tells us. When we fall, we're given the strength to now go forth and tell our brothers about the, the hope that we have within us, okay? Any thoughts, comments, or questions, or, or final observations? Anything from anyone online or, or in person? Along with that, I always think of what David Wilson, the story he tells of when he and Luke are swimming. Yeah. And Luke is afraid to go into the deep end because he says, what if I let go? Mm-hmm. And David says, but I'm not. Yeah, that Ruth was just reminding us a story that uh, David Filson always tells. And again, I thought of the very same story as I was uh, putting this together, was that uh, he would tell a story when his son Luke, Luke now is, oh gosh, he's in his 20s, he's an adult. But, uh, but when he was a little, just a little guy and couldn't swim and he had him there in the pool, uh, he was deathly afraid because he said, what if, what if I let go of you, dad? But his dad would always tell him, you can let go of me, but I will not let go of you. You can be confident. You can be here in the water confidently because I will not let go of you. And it's the same thing for us. You know, we, we tend to, this is why we struggle with this doctrine so much is because we tend to think that it's really in our hands. We tend to think it's us that can let go. But again, what we're told in scripture over and over and over again, it's my work. I initiated it, meaning Jesus did, uh, God the Father did, and I'm not gonna let you go. I'm not gonna let you go. Even if you let go of me, I'm not going to let go of you. And that's a, the greatest assurance that I can give you. Uh, let's see. Um, oh, some, someone thanking me. Thank you, Becca. 
appreciate you being with us. Anyone else? Any other thoughts? Yes. It makes me think of this that footprints in the sand poem. Mm -hmm. You know, about, you know, you've always been with me and the footprints. Yeah. When I need you most, you left me because only my footprints were there. Yeah. Yeah. That's an old, uh, I think it's anonymous. I can't remember if they've they've credited to anyone, but Debbie was just reminding us of uh, the footprints in the sand. Uh, uh, I guess it's a mini story or poem where it talks about where she's, do y'all know this? Are y'all familiar with this? Uh, Two two sets of footprints in the sand. And uh, the person noticed, Lord, you know, there's your footprints and my footprints. I noticed that during the most difficult and trying times in my life, there's only one set of footprints. Where did you go? And he says, I didn't go anywhere. It's in those difficult times that I was carrying you. That's why you only see one set of footprints. And again, so beautiful because it's true. It's true. He's the one who carries us even when we fall down, even when we can't walk anymore. He's the one who carries us. So beautiful thought, beautiful image. Anyone else? And Peter, yes, that's beautiful. Uh, we're, we're reminded, uh, Sydney reminded us that uh, is uh, when, the, when the women came to the tomb, is that they specifically said, and what's interesting, again, that, that gospel account is not written by Peter, okay? It's uh, one of the other, I think we believe that's in, uh, I think it's in a couple of different accounts, either Luke or, or Mark. Uh, what? It's, it's either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Point being, not Peter. But what did they say? They said, uh, go tell the others and Peter. They singled out Peter. Why? Because what, what's Peter going through right now? What's Peter going through right now? He's thinking, I've, I've betrayed Jesus. I've fallen too far away. But it's almost as if Jesus is saying, I've got a special word for you, Peter. You know, uh, I, I've risen. I've risen, and that makes all the difference for you. You know, and he's the one who told, he told Peter, uh, on this rock, I'll, I'll build my, on you, because of you, on you, I'll build my church. Not because of your abilities, because of what I've done in you. So, Steve. Judas, he's, that's specifically Judas right there. And again, that, you know, there's a, there's, um, uh, let's see if I can have it in my notes here. I wrote it down. It's something you can look up. Um, It is in Psalms. um, Well, I'll have to find it. Uh, Oh, here it is. Psalm 41.9. And it specifically talks, it's prophesying about Judah. Psalm 41.9. John 13, 8, Psalm 69, 25, and, and uh, Psalm 109, 8. Again, these are specifically talking about and referring to, again, th- this one. And again, that, that's how you know. That's how you know that Judas never had it to begin with. Because again, according to the plan, according to God's plan, this is all ordained, right? This is all uh, um, uh, prophesied ahead of time that there would be one, there would be one who would, who would turn, who would turn on the, on the Savior, uh, turn on the Messiah and and sell him for a few coins, you know. So he never had it. He never had it. Anyone else? 
All right. Hey, it's a privilege to be here with you guys tonight. I'm not sure we have one more, one more next week, and then we're going to break for the holidays. And we're still thinking through what we might do next semester, whether that's a pivot back to uh, Sunday or we're even, I, I've even had a discussion with David that perhaps we can co-teach something together on Sunday mornings in between services. Uh, that's a possibility. But again, we got to make sure we have the space to do that. But other way, one way or another, we're going to get you content one way or another. So so again, thank you for being here. Appreciate you doing that. And, and thank you all online for, for joining me. Uh, it's a uh, privilege to be able to do this. And, and gosh, if you guys weren't here, who would, I, who would I do it with, right? So, so thanks again. What's that? I know, right? Yeah. If I, want a, if I want a Buntini, I got to keep doing this, right? That's my reward. Yeah. I love you guys. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye online, folks. Mm-hmm.